this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. You know, if you're feeling exhausted these days, I don't think you're alone. You know, running a business in the midst of a global pandemic is incredibly challenging, to say the least. And if you're feeling that way, I think you're going to like this next episode. If nothing else, it might give you just a smidge of solace that it could be worse because my next guest, Michael Dash, experienced, I think, the worst of entrepreneurship. He built his company up to $5 million in annual sales clients like Goldman Sachs, Overstock.com when he ran into a challenge with a partner. And the rest, as he will describe, was a roller coaster of emotion mixed with addictions to both gambling, cocaine, Adderall, a whole litany of problems, which Michael will describe for you. There's still lots of lessons embedded within this episode. I want you to particularly listen to how Michael made the case to an acquirer that although his business was on the downward spiral, it had a future. And I think that, if nothing else, is worth taking away from this conversation about how to make a struggling company look more attractive to a potential acquirer. Here to tell you the entire story is Michael Dash. Michael Dash, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me, John. Excited to be here. I love the picture behind you. Describe for folks who aren't watching on YouTube what is behind you. Uh, What is behind me is me at my highest level of excitement as I finished summoning Mount Kilimanjaro in 2018. And I am pointing up, screaming at the top of my lungs with excitement. Um, at the uh, sign that says, congratulations, you have made it. Your five-day journey up is complete. Awesome. It looks fantastic. And that was something that you did after, I think, you sold your business, which is what we're going to get into today. Tell me a little bit about Parallel uh, HR Solutions. What did you guys do? So it started as a side hustle, like most businesses. I was working in New York City for a staffing company, and I was calling on E-Trade Financial, if you're familiar with that organization. And they said to me, we don't have any business in New York City, that's where I was at the time, or New Jersey, but if you happen to know somebody in Sandy, Utah, we're trying to hire 200 financial service reps in the next three and a half weeks. And you know, I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur and build my own business. My dad was, so it's kind of from the cloth. And so I happened to know one person outside of the metropolitan area because my company only wanted business in the metropolitan area. I knew one person who I had worked with before joining that company. She was from Utah. So it was almost divine intervention. I called her up and I said, look, I got this great opportunity. Do you want to put a bid in with me on this? If not, I'm going to bid it myself and I'll figure it out. She was all in. So we put a bid in on the project and I remember we worked all weekend. I submitted it at like 6 p.m. on Sunday night at 11 a.m. Monday morning. I got a call from the SVP of HR from E-Trade and she's like, we accept your bid. And I was just like, uh, oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> for the language, but, you know, um, uh, and I went into my uh, current boss. I took two weeks. I told him I need to take two weeks off. I have a, you know, an emergency. It was an emergency. 
Uh, I didn't tell him what kind. I just said it was an emergency. And uh, I flew out to Utah. We put a team together. She was at another staffing company. So her team fulfilled the business and I managed it all. And I took a 30% cut. And uh, so I was still running my, you know, a $4 million book of business in New York. So I was kind of juggling both things. We, we finished that project on time and under budget. Then we got projects from E-Trade in Alpharetta, Georgia, Jersey City, and Tampa, Florida. And in one year, we filled 800 full-time uh, financial service rep licensed Series 763 positions. And it was at that time that I knew, uh, all right, I'm not working for anybody anymore. And eventually I left. I went out to Utah and started Parallel HR with her, my uh, ex-business partner. So that's kind of how it all started. Got it. Okay. And where does it go from there? So when I think of HR solutions and staffing, I think of like a traditional headhunter where you hire them, they go out and find a key employee and they take, you know, a percentage of their first year's salary. Is that the kind of stuff you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. That was a majority of it, but we were also doing contracting services. So, so we focused on technology because I had met her at a tech staffing company four years prior. She was, she had a great tech background. She was very skilled and I was very skilled on the business side. So it was a, you know, uh, we had dueling skill sets that fit well together. And, uh, so we would focus on software engineers. So we focused on positions we were able to staff that we could duplicate easy and that companies hired multiple numbers of the same skill set. So it was very, uh, you know, simple to train our staff. If we could train and have the staff master certain profiles and what to look for and how to screen for them and how to, you know, uh, headhunt from other companies, then we felt we would have a competitive advantage. So we focused on, you know, and most companies have, you know, anywhere from, you know, smaller companies, five to hundreds of software engineers in some of these bigger e-commerce companies. So we knew if we could get in with some of those, have a process we could duplicate that we'd be able to scale it. So that's what we did. But then we also started getting involved in, um, in, in consultants. So when companies would need just an expert to come in for six months or for a year versus full time. And so we would payroll them, they would be on our payroll, and then we would um, you know, um, send them out consult them out on projects for six months, for a year, whatever. And then we would take the spread. So we would put a markup on it. Usually let's just say uh, an engineer was a hundred dollars. We would need to pay them a hundred dollars an hour. Uh, we would bill the client maybe 125, 130, and we would make 25, 30 bucks an hour on each person. Got it. And when you went to sell this company, what proportion of it was from recruiting fee? What proportion of your revenue was from rec recruiting fees compared with the, 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 uh, sort of margin you took on, on the contract employees? So I would say percentage wise working and what we focused on, it was like 70, 30, 70% full-time, 30% consultants, but revenue was actually flip-flopped. We would have about 70% revenue of the consultants, 30% on the full-time. There were just more opportunities on the full-time side. So we focused on that, but we made more money on the consulting side because it's, it's reoccurring revenue. And, you know, uh, the other stuff is one and done type of stuff and you have to start over again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Recurring because the employee gets paid every two weeks and you take a cut. Yeah. They would stay on month over month over month. So you have somebody, you know, some of these that we, we focused on high level, engineers so they were good so when they were with companies if, as long as companies had the budget for them they would keep them on because it was nothing with their performance most of the time they were better than the employees they had with them they were just expensive so it was a matter of budgeting um and and also you know you figure you place a hundred thousand dollar software engineer you get 20k right or 25k but you place a hundred dollar an hour engineer for a year and you make 25 an hour on that, if they're court to court, for instance, then, you know, you got about 2000 working hours in a year, multiply that by 25, you know, you're obviously making a heck of a lot more money doing mm -hmm. that. Um, but where I was um, at the time, 
in Utah, there was just a lot more full-time opportunity, full-time staffing opportunities available. So that's kind of where, where we, we focused. Got it. And, and what was your setup like with your partner? You mentioned you started this business with her. I mean, how did you guys divvy up the equity? Did you kick in money? Was this just a handshake deal? Like how did you guys structure the original agreement? So, you know, all this happened uh, initially because of the uh, business development I was doing in New York and because I brought this huge E-Trade opportunity to her, right? So that's kind of what gave her the confidence to leave her company um, and then start with me when, um, when we got together. So we wanted it to be a women-owned business because there's certain advantages in the marketplace for that, uh, diversity and, and, you know, a lot of organizations have programs. So, um she had 51% and I, excuse me, had 49%. I did pitch in some money initially just from an you know, infrastructure standpoint. It wasn't significant. I mean, maybe 10, 15 grand, I think. I mean, significant in the big scheme of things, right? To some people, it's very significant. So I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, downplay that. But, um, but yeah, so it was about 10, 15 grand. And then we were off to the races. So in terms of setups, like my responsibilities were a client sales, business development, you know, all client relationships. I managed all that, negotiating contracts, negotiating agreements with the client, all of that. She handled the infrastructure uh, within the organization. She handled the recruiting process. She hired and trained recruiters. We eventually opened an office in India. She did, she did all of that. Um, you know, we, we looked at it, we could hire four people in India for the price of one in the U.S. And it kind of made sense. And I agreed with it. So she set all that up. So she would go to India and I would hold down the fort in, in Utah. And we had an office in Lewiston, Idaho, and also in New York City when, when I bought the company from her and I expanded uh, back to New York. What triggered you purchasing the company from her? Oh, you want to go there. <laughs> Um, well, eventually we got to a point after about five and a half, about five years, we were, we were basically growing at a million a year. So we were up, uh, uh, doing about 5 million in revenue five years in, but my goals were to build this company to a $20 million company and get bought out by one of the monsters in the industry. But she was kind of content at where we were. I mean, we were both making good money at the time, especially in Utah. And she had two kids and she wanted to, she was telling me she wanted to spend more time with her kids and all this other stuff. But we really had a complete breakdown in communication between each other and we started resenting each other and it grew towards a very unhealthy relationship. Um, I was not the person I am today. I was driven by ego. I was driven by money. I was driven by, uh, you know, build, build, build. Uh, she also, um, I would say resented me. I mean, because I was kind of flamboyant and out there and taking the spotlight a lot. Um, and, um, I don't think she really enjoyed that. She didn't like that. Um, so we just, and, and she was started working less and less and I was grinding it out. I mean, my life was this business. I was putting in 10, 12 hour days. I was going to events all at night. I was doing all these things. She wasn't. And I, and we were getting, and we were splitting it 50, 50 from, uh, uh, you know, how we got paid. And so I started resenting that a lot. I'm working 10, 12 hour days. She's working six hour days. So it just didn't, it, it wasn't working anymore. And, um, one of us had to go, we weren't even speaking to each other for a while and our offices were right next to each other. Uh, there, it grew into a very poisonous situation. So we had our own lawyers negotiate a deal for the two of us. And I ended up leveraging the relationships I had to buy her out. How did you value the company for the purposes of buying her out? It's a great question. We actually had our accountants and lawyers kind of work it out and we kicked numbers back and forth. And we ended at 1.35 million uh, that I paid her uh, and I owed her a million at the closing date and then 350 over the next two years. So 50 K every six months. Um, as long as she abided by the contracts and agreements that we signed, which she did not. And that's a whole nother story. 
which I'm glad to get into if you'd like. I would like. Let's talk about the valuation. Before we go there, though, uh, so I'm, I'm, you're around $5 million in revenue at the time that you guys split up? Yeah, and we were growing at a steady pace, and we had okay. some clients. We had some clients that were projecting certain numbers that we worked into the uh, um, valuation. Okay, got uh, it. So it was a lot done on projections and stuff. Yeah. What would you put to the bottom line in, in a year where you generated 5 million in revenue, like on a percentage basis, what would have been a, uh, what would you expect it to put on the bottom line? Um, um, I would say in 5 million, we would probably, I don't have percentage wise answers for you, but I would say we'd probably take it out 750. And that between would be the two of us. And that would be split between the two of you guys? Yeah. Okay. Got it. And so you know, just doing the math a little bit. So you, you're kind of pulling out 750. And so you valued the company, um, which she owned half of, right? Um, Actually, around, 51% to be technical. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you valued it at, at around, you know, $2.7 million or about 50% of revenue? Yeah, approximately. Uh, approximately. See, the, the challenge was there was reoccurring revenue, which has, you know, you can get multiples on, but then there's the flat revenue, which nobody's going to pay more than one-to-one -one for, if that even, mm -hmm. uh, because it's unpredictable, right? Yeah. And, you know, companies want to be able to predict and forecast. And on the full-time side, it's really tough to do that. So, you know... If I had to start the business over again, I would just focus completely on contract work <laughs> because that's where you get the number, right? You know, um, and uh, you, in, in our industry, like an average multiples, like two and a half times is, is, a, good, is a good number to shoot for. Yeah, and so to get, to, to sort of get her to agree to value the company at 50% of revenue is a pretty good deal for, for you. We were just at that time, we were heavily on the full-time side of things. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, we negotiated it down and I mean, still at that point in my career, I didn't have a million dollars, you know, to pay her. So I had to borrow half of it. I had about, I had about half of it saved from the work that I had done and everything, but I had other investments going on. I had like a bunch of houses and a bar I invested in and you know, the things we all do. Uh, uh, when we're growing a company, you know, we're not busy enough. We're not focused enough on the company. We have to go complicate our lives and like do all these other things that in the big scheme of things, like end up like reducing the value of our life in, for my case, my case, at least they reduced the quality of living for me because I not, was not focused on myself personally. I was focused on running these businesses on I have four houses on my tenants. I wouldn't hire somebody to run the houses because I was like, why would I pay them? I could do it myself. You know, it's just this attitude I had back then that uh, I strongly would not advise <laughs> um, for myself. I'm speaking to myself now. Um, yeah. Uh, now I value, um, I value automation and I value um, partnership. Um, even after a tumultuous partnership that I got out of, which, uh, you know, the partnership we're talking about lasted six years in court. We were in court for six years um, because after I paid her the million dollars, I actually found out she was having an affair with our director in India, who I inherited as my director. Now, she was married with two kids in the U.S., so it was a shock to me. She uh, uh, and this guy hated me because she obviously was having an affair with him and poisoning his mind. So it, it turned out to kind of be a, a very rocky road, almost disastrous in a sense after I bought the company, because within the first three months, the India office stopped basically performing for me. You know, I hadn't met them. I mean, I worked with them every day, but I hadn't met them in person until I bought the company. So all their loyalty was to her. So I had about... 15, pe uh, 15 people there, six of them, like, were very, I had great relationships with, but the other ones, like, were all loyal to her. 
so um, about three months after, three, four months after the purchase, I was under, under a lot of stress because I just borrowed half a million dollars, owed her 350 more. I'm paying, you know, I have to, I have to close deals, right? And um, she basically started a competing company in India and took nine of my 15 employees with her. And they moved directly upstairs in the same building as my remaining people. So that'll tell you something about how our relationship was. Did you have a non-compete with her? I had a non-compete, but she contended it wasn't valid for India. How did the courts take that? It was a U.S. court, so they didn't, the, they said it was kind of null and, and they didn't really take it up. They only took up the U.S. portion. So when we filed about it, they didn't really rule on it, which was, hmm. yeah, which was uh, unfortunate, but. Mm -hmm. So I basically built, uh, you know, bought this company for a huge sum of money uh, at the time and had to rebuild an entire office, which, and that was a million dollar producing office. Like they were crushing it for us. Hmm. So, um, so yeah, I didn't have the rosy exit that probably a lot of people you uh, interview have had. I had hmm. the tumultuous, uh, yeah, I had to go through the fire to see the, uh, to see the light. How did it end with your partner? So you paid a million dollars. You you had three hundred and fifty. I'm assuming you didn't pay the three fifty when you found out about this affair and the, all the stuff. Yeah, when I found out about the affair and the office, I didn't care about the affair. Like I don't care. Do whatever you want. But when it affected my business, then obviously I did. When she's within a, a like a month of paying her a million dollars. She's taking this guy to the Maldives for two weeks. He's supposed to be running my office, you know? And I'm mm -hmm. seeing pictures being posted from the Maldives. I'm like, what the heck is going on? Like my office is tanking. I just paid a million dollars. So um, I went to see a lawyer. We sent her a letter that we were holding off on the first 50K payment, which was due in six months. So right before it was due, I sent the letter. And we were doing an internal investigation and we felt that she violated the agreement. And then she sued me. So um, that's kind of what started our, our lawsuit. Then I countersued her to make a matters more complicated. Her sister and brother-in-law worked for me. Oh, her, sister was the, her sister was the best employee I had. So um, she stayed for another year, the sister. And then the sister started a competing company with her in the U.S. So they took the India operation and expanded in the U.S. And then the, I had agreements with the sister. She violated them. The brother-in-law violated them. So then I sued again. I sued them when they let you. So it was a mess. And again, a lot of this could have been avoided if we communicated, but we had stopped communicating and just built resentment up towards each other. And again, I was a different person. I was like my ego was out of control and I, um, I, I really felt wronged. I felt screwed. So, and I was also going to the wrong people for advice, uh, uh, specifically my father. Um, you know, it's one thing I learned, don't go to family members for advice because they're going to give you a biased opinion. Yes, it's going to be loving and caring and all that, but it's biased. They want to protect their children, right? So my dad's an entrepreneur. My dad would just fuel my flame. He would just, don't you dare let her screw you over. And I'm like, oh, I'm not. There's no way I will, you know? And, and that just, that didn't give me the perspective I needed of like, hey, take a deep breath, step away. How does this look for you in a year, in two years, in five years? what's the goal here and what are you going to achieve? And I never put it in that context or thought about it until I was six years into the thing and just wanted to get out and ended up settling. So these lawsuits and uh, that I'm speaking of and these um, counter suits back and forth, 
uh, went and, and over a six-year period until the lawsuit finally ended. It was I was deposed five different times. We deposed her multiple times. We actually went to court. We had a trial. It lasted six days. I was on the stand four or five different times. Um, and so was she, and so was her. Oh, and, and in, in the interim, she got divorced and she married the uh, director from India and had a couple kids with him. So he was in the US and, and, and at this, yeah. So it was just a mess, but we went over to court. The jury actually ruled that I owed her the 350K because I signed an agreement as the CEO of the company saying I would pay it. And that document superseded everything, but that she caused 260K in damages. So it was a net 90K basically I owed her, but the judge ruled that she was the prevailing party. So I was responsible for her legal fees. Which were? So she wanted over a half million dollars in legal fees. Now my own legal fees were $1 million over six years. Oh, three thank, you for, what you... thank you for feeling my pain. So she was threatening. So I was like, I'm not paying that. You know, I told her, uh, you know, I'm not paying that. I don't have it. You know, I mean, I just, I owe my own lawyers a million dollars. I don't have it to pay. Anyway, so um, she was also threatening to, because um, she was upset at the ruling. Um, and I was just kind of like, I wanted it over. My mindset had shifted. I had done some personal development work on myself. I went to Bali. I had a big experience in Bali. Eat, pray, love, baby. And um, I, uh, so my mindset was like, I just want my life back. That's what I wanted. I didn't care about the money. I didn't care. I just wanted my life back. So she was threatening to appeal it. And if you appeal, that could be another year to two years of my life. And I was like, oh, hell no. no, I ain't doing this again, you know. And so we ended up negotiating. And this is the irony of the whole situation and the irony of my life is that we negotiated a settlement of 350, the same amount I owed her six years prior. I just had a million dollars in legal fees to pay off. So it was six years of torturing myself. I did it to myself. I have nobody else. Like I've taken responsibility. I've, uh, I've forgiven her. Obviously she was a major part of why it happened, but I was a major part of why it happened and I own it and I don't blame anybody and I don't blame myself either. I've forgiven myself. I've forgiven her. I've moved on with my life. And that's really why when I sold the company, I just wanted to get out of it. I grew to resent the very company I built. And a major reason was because of this legal matter was hovering over me while I was trying to lead and manage people. And I ended up at the end, I reduced a lot of staff. Um, and, you know, I was in, you know, when I sold the company, we were doing 3 million. We weren't doing five and a half million anymore, but I was completely unfocused because, well, I was trying to be focused, but my, my attention excuse me, was diverted in a million directions and mostly on this legal matter. So, um, so, so yeah, so I paid her the 350 and signed the agreements and I settled that lawsuit and sold the business in the same week. And all the proceeds I got from the business paid her off and paid my lawyers off. And I, and then I left Utah and moved to California. <laughs> This is an, an incredible, incredible journey that you've gone through. I'm, I'm smiling because you're smiling, but clearly it was not something to laugh about during it. Where, no, it, was, you mentioned, it was painful. You mentioned uh, your ego and, and how that was fueling a lot of the decision-making. Have you been able to unearth what was going on for you personally to that, that your ego was in need of that sort of fulfillment or that sort of satisfaction? Well, I, you know, I wrote a book called chasing the high and I mentioned that because, and then that's my whole journey through entrepreneurship and I have a past in addiction. 
um, and lawsuits, right? That was a part of it too, explaining and talking about the story. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mentioned chasing the high because that's what I was doing. I was always chasing a high. And for me, you know, I started gambling when I was 11 years old and I had a 20 year gambling addiction and, uh, um, and then a drug addiction. And in college, I was like a bookie and a drug dealer. Like that's, that's what I did in college. I mean, I was a student and I also worked, I went door to door selling home improvements, but I mentioned all those things because I was chasing the dollar. I was, uh, amongst all those addictions, I was addicted to money and I wanted more money. It was money, 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 accumulating things. I was programmed amongst a lot of us are programmed as children growing up that money will make you happy. If you have money, you can live the life, you can get the houses, the cars, the suits, the woman, the man, whatever, the everything that you want. And being rich is where it's at. And so I was brainwashed myself when I was brainwashed by TV and the media. And even my dad was an entrepreneur. So my dad just worked his ass off. Like he was not around for sporting events. He was not around for plays and stuff like that. That was my mom, right? My dad was working and grinding all the time. And his mentality was you're the first one in and the last one out. That's how you become successful. That's how you beat the competition. And that's what I did because that's what I learned. Now, I would never do it that way now with all the experiences I have. No, no, no. Now it's about set up a good structure, put, the, you know, put a structure in place you can automate and you can grow and you can scale. And uh, less is more these days, right? So I have a totally different attitude through my experiences. But back then, you know, um, this is 20 years ago, you know, the internet wasn't really, it was just coming into its own, Right. Um, and it was just crazy to say that just 20 years ago, the internet was coming. It's crazy. It's yeah. Been, yeah. You know, it's shocking to think about what's changed. Yeah, what kind of car, yeah. what kind of car did your dad drive when you were growing up? Uh, nothing fancy not at all. He, my did, dad is the opposite of me in terms of money. He is so frugal. He is, I mean, I call him cheap. Like, I feel like he's cheap. No, you're not leaving enough for the tip. I got to tell him every time. I always throw an extra 10 bucks on top of the tip, right? I'm like, you have all this money. Why aren't you spending it? What are you saving this money for? Like, I don't want your money, right? Live your life, but he doesn't want to spend it. He loves the stock market. By the way, he's 88 and he trades in the market every single day. He watches Kramer every day, loves Kramer. And he... He's grown and he's done great in the market over the past, you know, since he's retired. So it keeps his mind going. He's sharp as a tack. Um, and um, I really, uh, I love that he loves, you know, keeping that going and everything. But in terms of money and everything, he has a nice house, but he drives this. I don't even know what the car is. Like, I don't even like being seen in it. Um, but, <laughs> but I think, you know what, actually, I'm sorry. He had a Lincoln Continental when I was in college uh, because I borrowed it. <laughs> That's how I remember now. Um, but otherwise, his cars are very modest, Volvos and like stuff like that. But those were sort of emblems for you of this frugalness, this importance of money, keeping it, not spending it. And it sounds like on, a, on some level, you were rebelling against that frugalness. If I didn't subscribe. I didn't subscribe to his frugalness. That was a him thing, not a me thing. To me, I was like, I want to enjoy my life. I'm going to spend money and I'll just make more. I got to work my, you know, if I go out and I drop two grand a night on a steak dinner with 10 of my friends and I decide to pick up the bill, I, I would pick it up and uh, I would just be like that weekend. I'd be like, all right, I just spent two grand. I got to work my ass off this weekend. That's how, that's how my mind worked at the time. What was your drug of choice? What wasn't my drug of choice? No, what was your drug oh, of choice? I, no, I know what you asked me. I was rephrasing the question oh. for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, it, you know, again, gambling was sort of my addiction, but then it was cocaine. Then it was oxys. I had a couple surgeries. I had two shoulder surgeries, two back surgeries. I got hooked on oxys very easily. Uh, then it was um, GHB, if you're familiar with that drug. And, um, oh, Adderall, 
Adderall was one of the worst drugs for me and one of the most recent because when I was building my business, like when I moved to Utah, that's when I was introduced to Adderall. I hadn't heard of it before. And I got hooked on Adderall real quick and I was popping like 30 milligrams a day in the office. And it really took away, uh, I took my, basically what Adderall will do for you is it definitely helps you focus. And I would get a shit ton of work done. But the flip side of that is it really messes with your emotional state. And if you're having like a good day, it's the best day you've ever had in your existence. <laughs> and if you're having a bad day, you're on the, you're depressed and on the verge of suicide. Mm. And those mood swings were prevalent on a daily basis for me. And it, it really, really affected me as a human being. Also as a leader, I did not lead from a place of empathy. I led from a place of almost dictatorship. Um, and until I stopped and like the last two years I was running the business, I wasn't really on Adderall. My employees noticed a huge difference. And, uh, you know, we had like much stronger, like I was mentoring them as a leader should, um, where the other years I was not, I was just all over the place and just be like, let's get deals, 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 you know? Hmm. Let's get into the actual sale. I mean, I, I, I have found the story so fascinating to date in, but I'd love to know about the deal. So you, you, you're at 5 million when you break up with your partner, what precipitated sort of shrinking to three? What, how, what, why did that happen? Was it the loss of the India office? I'm assuming contributed to that. Yeah. One of the big clients we had changed their business model. Uh, and, we lost a significant amount of business, uh, however, which would have been fine if I was focused on the business, I would have been able to replace it, but I was focused on the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And I was the, the main salesperson at the company. I brought in, I had all the relationships, I brought in all the business, I made things happen. Uh, and then I had a huge team of recruiters who would fulfill it all. So I tried to bring some salespeople in, but I didn't mentor them properly. And I didn't put the time in to, you know, continuing to build, but I was exhausted and I had expanded into New York and that turned into a nightmare. Um, so um, I had problems with employees I hired there. I overpaid for some uh, very senior level employees because I wanted to bring senior people in who could kind of run the offices. And I was focused on this lawsuit at the same time. So I think I lost like a chunk of money in the New York business trying to expand into New York. Um, so I would say that that was why my, my, I was diverted all over the place. So what would you have been doing in terms of top line revenue and bottom line profit when you decided, okay, I want to sell this company? What was I doing? Yeah. Uh, I think we were... Uh, I, I, I think we were doing about 3 million a year in revenue and, in revenue, and um, the margins were lower than they had previously been uh, because I had taken on some, uh, some clients like Goldman Sachs was a big client of mine and they are penny pinchers. Let me tell you. Um, so I, I started doing a bunch of business with them thinking that, you know, I would get some volume, which they told me it would, but it didn't turn out that way. And, and um, yeah, so it was about 3 million. And then I was pulling about maybe 250 out of that. Got it. 200, okay. 200 250. But, uh, but it was really, I wasn't really pulling it out myself. I was like paying bills, everything. Right. Legal <laughs> you know, bills, it sounds I, like. <laughs> yeah, legal bills and, you know, and yeah basically legal bills. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so when I sold the company, I was like, I could have got more than I got, but I just wanted out. I wanted mm -hmm. enough money to pay off all my uh, loans and everything. Um, and, you know, I had a credit line on top of all that. I had a credit line with Chase Bank, which was a half million dollar line. I was into it for 280K. And then one of the years, in the whole time I was in business, one year we lost money. And as soon as that year popped up, they, they shut down my line at 280. And, they, and, they, and it was a 14% uh, APR 
or 14% uh, uh, rate they were uh, charging me. Uh, on a, the two a, yeah, not APR, but uh, yeah, fourteen percent. Now I signed that years prior, not even thinking that you know I would only take the money and I would pay it off, not thinking about some legal, you know, none of that stuff. So I really forgot totally about the you know they always say the devil is in the details, and I always say that also because I learned some experience from experience of not paying attention to the details. Uh, and then it, it bit me in the ass because I didn't have the 280 to pay it off. So I, I was, you know, paying that. And you, you, as you can probably, as it lands on you, you're probably feeling the chaos in it. Because <laughs> I, I am. Feel, I'm just, yeah. I, I, I feel I, the chaos in, in explaining it. My yeah. head is spinning. So you can imagine living it, how distracting it would be and how unfocused I was on the business itself. Oh gosh. Yeah. No, I can, I can totally feel that. So you're, you're starting offices in New York. You're, you're chasing Goldman Sachs as a client. You've got the, the, the lawsuit that you're kind of, it sounds like coming at least to some level of agreement, although it hasn't settled yet. Was there a straw that broke the camel's back that said, okay, enough, I'm out. Like, can you remember the day or the moment that you said, I'm selling this business? With everything I described, I was just being worn down physically, mentally, emotionally. I was just worn down. So it happened over a period of time. And there's not a specific moment. I wasn't even like jumping for joy when it happened. I was just like, thank God. I didn't go out and celebrate. I didn't go because I didn't do any. I was just like, it's over. Oh, my God. I got six more months to transition this and then I'm out. Like, that's literally, I was so exhausted. I had no emotion left to celebrate anything. Said I was settling the lawsuit and selling the company. It was more or less just like, uh, thank God this is done. Well, let's get into the actual transaction itself because it was a $3 million company putting two, you know, between two and $300,000 on the bottom line. How did you go about marketing? I mean, did you hire an advisor? Did you, did you market it yourself? Like, how did you find a buyer? Sure. So I had a finance guy the whole time, my financial advisor. So I just worked with him to put the numbers together and everything and the valuation and try to get as much as I could. Um, but I, uh, also was resigned to the fact that I would, uh, that I was going to, whoever was interested, I was going to present them with a discount if we could close it quick. Um, because again, I didn't care that much about the money anymore. My mind had shifted about, um, not getting as much as I could. That wasn't my goal. My goal was getting what I needed to pay all the bills off so I could start fresh. That was so my what goal. Did, what so, did your financial advisor say it was worth? Um, so he thought with the trailing numbers and everything in the projections that I should get one and change. Got it. But I took, I took less because I just wanted out. So I, I ended up taking about seven fifty all in. Got it. And, and, and so he figured it was worth uh, financial advisor, woman or man, man. Man, so he figured it was worth uh, around a million bucks. Uh, so he's putting sort of a, it sounds like a, maybe a four or five times SDE on it. Sellers discretionary earnings if you're if you're pulling out a couple hundred grand. Um, but you were you were you were happy to take less. Where did you find buyers? I mean, did you again? Did you know somebody? Did you like what was the process you went through to find people to to buy it? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I had an office in India, as I mentioned. So the biggest competitor in where I was in India, which is Nasik, India, uh, I had actually formed a relationship with this guy because originally we were stealing employees from each other. And <laughs> we just I'm just uh, and they were much bigger than we were over there. So they were taking my good employees. So I, I called them and we started talking and I said, why don't we like support each other? Because this is a small place in India small place in India with 2 million people, by the way, but that's small in India. Um, and, um, so we agreed and we became friendly. So 
when I told when I was ready to sell, I called them up and I'm like, hey, I'm looking to sell. If you guys are interested, let me know. They were owned by a much bigger company in the U.S. called Amcus, and they were interested. So they flew me out to their offices in D.C. and I met with them. Then I had four probably uh, competitors, direct competitors in Utah. So I went to them and I was friends with a few of them. So I went to them, told them, and then my best friend uh, lived in New York City, who I had worked with years prior in the staffing business. He had a $20 million nurse staffing agency, nursing and admin, and he wanted to add IT to the mix. So I told him I was selling also, and he was interested. So I started meeting with these people dwindling it down to who was really serious. I thought some of my competitors were just trying to find out big information for me. So I didn't release really anything to them until I knew they were really serious. And basically it boiled down to my good friend in New York and this compete, this company in India, which is based the parent company in DC. Those were the two that were most interested. And then I tried to, you know, I had, you know, leveraged some of it, some of them against each other. But um, I know if I waited and stuck with the bigger company that I would have got more. But I, you know, with with my with my friend, I mean, we've known each other since five years old. Mm. So it was like kind of easy. I mean, we negotiated back and forth. It wasn't it wasn't an easy negotiation per se, but it was easy once all that happened and transitioning it and everything like that. Got it. So at what point do you raise the specter of valuation? I mean, as you're having these conversations with Amkis and your friend in New York, I mean, are you letting them place a value on the company or are you saying, look, I want X for the business? Yeah, I, I went in and I said, I want X for the business. And here's how we came up with those numbers. And then, you know, I just laid out everything and I would have my finance guy actually call in to these meetings so he could walk them through the numbers. Um, I've learned uh, along the way that, you know, trying to like be the numbers expert on valuations is not my jam, right? I'm a very strong numbers person, but I'm not a valuation mergers and, and an acquisition person. So I kind of let him handle a lot of that. And um, it was just, we negotiated back and forth. They picked apart a lot. They, you know, so we basically did projections based on the clients and the contracts we had in the years prior and the years forward. Um, and, you know, they, uh, they picked it apart a lot and uh, told us some of the assumptions we made were invalid based on whatever reasoning they presented in the marketplace. And, uh, you know, we kind of just talked things out from there. When you walk into those meetings, did you say, I want a million bucks? I don't remember. No, I asked for more than that originally. Okay. I think I said I wanted one one point three five, because that's what I bought the company for. So mm -hmm. I was trying to get back what I bought it for. Um, so I think that was the original goal. Mm -hmm. But I knew I was coming off that number. <clears throat> yeah, because you got to remember, like this isn't a typical uh, negotiation. I was going to not push hard. I w I wanted out. So I was going to negotiate the best I could, play these two against each other and get the most I could. And, and so I could bounce. Did either of the two organizations, Amkis or your friend, uh, put together a letter of intent or some sort of formal offer that prior to you agreeing with your friend to, to proceed? Did, they, did, did Amkis put together an offer at all? They didn't. Um, we signed NDAs. Um, but the, I had an offer from my friend and I went down that alley while I was working with Amkis to get an offer. They couldn't move as quickly because they're a much bigger organization. They had to get sign offs and all this other stuff. And I was, I was done, John, I was like done. I was just like, get me the heck out of this. So I went just with, uh, I negotiated with my friend. I told him that, look, Amkis is going to come to the table with a, with a offer. So if we don't get this done quickly, like I'm going to obviously start considering their offer. So he moved quickly and we put something together and um, we went back and forth a little bit. 
there was some back end opportunity for me to make even more than I did based on, you know, revenues numbers coming in, driving some business and things of that nature. Uh, and I was, so I was comfortable with the 750 basically. Um, part of it was asset. It was like, we divided it up where like, I think like two uh, or like a hundred of it was for the property and assets and the rest was for the business. So Got something it. like that. Yeah. So Got initially, it. yeah. Yeah. And then there, again, there was a tie on on the back end for commissions over a year long period um, from certain accounts. And, um, if, if those met and if he sold his company, I would also be tied into 1% of that sale. Got it. What was his first counteroffer? So you go in at a million three, five, knowing that you're not going to probably get that, but that was your initial starting point. What did he, your friend come up with as his starting point? I think it was a half mil. And what was that like? This is a buddy of yours that you've known since you were four years old. Yeah. What was your reaction to a half mil? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm like, I bought this company for 1.35 million. And, uh, and he's like, well, it's not worth that. And I knew that. But um, it was more his accountant and his valuation guys saying, look, it's not worth this amount of money, you know. Uh, these assumptions he's making are, are you know, it, the, they saw – a period of going from 5 million steadily down to 3 million. So there was, there's alarms there. Right. Um, and so they were kind of focused on those alarms being set off. So then he came up to six and then eventually uh, we landed on 750 with options to earn money on the back end on commissions. Uh, for certain clients and on the, on the, on the sale, on his eventual sale. But I had to hit those commission numbers first. I guess a lot of people are listening right now and the, and we're recording this in the, in the depths of this pandemic wave two, whatever you want to call it, where a lot of small businesses are facing the same thing you face. The, it was 5 million last year. Now it's 3 million this year. And Many of them just want out. They're exhausted, right? They're just, yeah, uh -uh. they're like you were. Um, how did you make the case that although you'd gone to five to three, there was a future for the business? What did you say to your friend that got him to open up his wallet to the tune of 750? Like, how did you change, make that case? I, I set up meetings with my largest clients and brought him to the meetings. So like overstock, overstock.com, if you have you heard of them before mm -hmm. you're familiar with that company, they were my biggest client in Utah. You know, I, I mean, they basically made the beginning of the company. They were the first client I had. They were a million dollar client certain almost every year. And I brought him in to meet the CEO and the CEO just told them how amazing we were and how we're going to be partners forever. And he had big plans for us. And, you know, yada, yada, yada. So that gained his confidence. And I did, I brought him to Goldman Sachs, who was another client of mine. And I brought him to, you know, Discovery uh, Channel, Discovery Communications, Discovery Channel. And that was the third biggest client of mine. So I built confidence with him through these meetings more than anything. How did you ensure that he wasn't going to just take those relationships and steal them? Because he's my, he's my best friend. I mean, he's not going to do that. And he didn't know anything about tech. He was a nursing admin guy. He wasn't a tech uh, uh, recruiter or a tech, you know, he, he didn't know anything about tech. So, so yeah, it was a unique situation that I was able to do that because of the relationship. I felt completely comfortable. And I believe at that time he had signed a letter of intent. So I was comfortable with it. And he signed an NDA, he signed all these things. But, you know, look, when you know somebody that long, you trust them like your brother. Mm -hmm. And there's, and I had problems with trust because of the whole lawsuit and everything. But he's one person that, you know, that I never had any, any thoughts about trust. Mm -hmm. In addition to the value of the company, what else was contentious in the negotiation? Well, afterwards, I would say things didn't go according to plan. 
So it was very contentious afterwards. And if I had to do it again, I wouldn't sell to my best friend because like, he's always reminding me of certain things. Like, just, and I'm just like, dude, like, I didn't force you in that you wanted to buy this. I told, I warned you. I actually did warn him. I warned him. Like initially I said, I don't want to sell to you. He's like, why? I'm like, because if things go wrong, like you're going to, I'm never going to hear the end of it. And I don't want it to affect our friendship. Our friendship means more than anything to me. But he was adamant. So I was like, all right. At the end of the day, I was more miserable with the company. So I'm like, all right. But afterwards, like all the biggest account, uh, hired like so discovery communications discovery channel was a big account at that time and i had some big billers that were bringing in a lot of money um literally a month after we closed the deal they hired a new ceo and you know when a new ceo comes into a company they want to change things they want to make an impact so the first thing they did is they said no more contractors at the whole company. And we want to wind down all the contractors that are here. So we had, I had four people, built, you know, where we were making the four, the five people that we were making 30 to 40 bucks an hour on who were working 2000 hours a year. That's a lot of scratch just there. And they were ending them all. So he was obviously furious, but we couldn't predict this. We sat down with Discovery and they told us all these plans they had for us. But, you know, you can't predict. That's why you just can't predict. You never know. And so eventually they, they got all the contractors. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just our company. It was all the companies I competed with for that business that were in there, too. It was a lot of companies. And the CEO changed the business model there. And they hired all those people from us full time. So that really hurt. So for months, he was like hemorrhaging money. And uh, he was pissed. And I would hear it. But there's nothing I could do about it. And at that point, I, I didn't get upset because I knew how he felt. And I just l listened to him and said, look, tell me what you want me to do. I'll do whatever you, you want. But there was nothing really we could do at that point. We'd just try to build the other companies up. But yeah, it didn't kind of go according to plan. What's your relationship like with them now? We're like brothers. There was a contentious time, but um, I think he realized that these things were out of control of both our hands and it was just bad, bad timing and bad luck. And sometimes, you know, look, luck is a part of business. It really is. You got to be in the right place at the right time. Obviously, you need to have, uh, you know, you need to work your ass off. You need to do the right things. You need to have a good business and everything. But if people say luck isn't part of it, um, you know, it certainly is. Um, throughout my career, there's been different. I don't really call it luck anymore uh, because I feel like you manifest these things. So, um, you know, you can manifest positive business and manifest positive relationships based on, you know, how you're showing up in the world and how you're showing up for your employees and how you're showing up as an organization. And if you're giving back to the community and all of these things. Um, but at that time, I just believed in luck. <laughs> I, didn't believe, I, I hadn't gotten to the manifestation point uh, in my life yet, but yeah. So after you sold, it sounds like Discovery Channel changed strategy and, and, and they lost some of that business. What about Goldman Sachs and Overstock? Did they continue to use you guys? Goldman Sachs did, um, but Overstock had a hiring freeze. And so they kept our people on, they were still billing and stuff, but they weren't hiring anymore. So all of a sudden the two of the three biggest clients, mm. you know, cause Overstock was going through some challenges at the time as a business. It had nothing to do with our performance. It's just the business models changed. And so he had to hire a business development person to go focus on getting new business and stuff. So he had to put out more money. It's not what he was looking to do. It sounds like in retrospect, you mentioned if you had it to do all over again, you might not sell to a, your best friend. What tactically might you have done differently if you could do it all over again? Not get in a lawsuit. 
<laughs> I guess that's that's an obvious one. What I guess I'm more interested in in retrospect. Again, hindsight's twenty twenty. Was there any way to draw uh, Amkis into the conversation? sooner? Could you have done anything to accelerate their decision-making? Would you have slowed down with your friend to get them, to get your timetables on the same wavelength so that Amkis had a, had a competing offer? Any of those I, tactics as you look back now? Well, I also had a million dollars in legal fees. So I was paying the legal fees, but I owed probably about 350 more in legal fees that I'd stopped paying because I just didn't have the and I had a whole contentious relationship with my law, with my lawyers where they were completely overbilling me and um, taking advantage of me. And, you know, I hired the law wrong law. The law firm I ended up with, like they, the, the, my lawyer was, hand, his other cases were like a $25 million legal case with GM. I'm like, why are you have my case? Right. But I didn't really know that till I was in it like way too far into it to change what, but like I ended up, um, I ended up having a more contentious relationship with my lawyers than my ex-business partner. That's a whole nother story for a different day. Uh, but yeah, that was emotionally draining. So, um, so I, uh, so to answer your question, which I believe was originally, would I draw the other bidder in Amkis to maybe get more money uh, and get the bids up? Where I was in my life, I didn't care to create a bidding war because I was so burnt out. But the business side of me is, yes, you need to create that bidding war. And yes, I would have waited and brought Ankis in, but that wasn't my focus at the time. You know, it just, I, it, when you think about all the things that were surrounding me, legal bills, that were mounting, right? Bills with the bank, I still needed to pay off, right? Um, the business itself, running and managing that, um, the actual uh, lawsuit, right? And still being in the lawsuit. And then trying to uh, manage my employees and my clients. And then I had these houses and I was an investor in something else. And so it was just so much that I had built this life where I felt like I wasn't living my life. My life was living me, if that makes sense. Like I wasn't running the business. The business was running me. And so at that point, I didn't care about creating and getting an extra 50K or an extra 100K. I just wanted out. So that's why I made the decision to run with the offer that I had and try to get the most out of it that I could. Makes a hundred percent sense. So tell me about your life now, because uh, you've left Utah and you've written a book. So, I mean, give me a sense of, paint a picture of where you are for folks. Uh, you know, we're recording this in, in October and the U.S. is uh, fully in the throes of this pandemic and an election, but you're not anywhere to be found. What, just tell people where you are. <laughs> Um, after I sold the business, I moved to California and I was living in Venice and it was very, um, there's a very negative vibe in the air in, uh, especially in California, um, and in Venice specifically compared to the rest of the U S I mean, it's already, the challenges exist for everybody in the world right now with the pandemic, but, and in the U S with the election and the division over it and the racial unrest. And then if you add on to all that in California, you have the fires which are burning out of control so the air quality is horrible in venice itself the homelessness problem is beyond out of control uh the drug problem on the streets is crazy i mean i would be walking just for my morning coffee and i'd walk by these embankment uh, these these camps where there's tents all along the sidewalk of homeless people and people are shooting up and smoking crack at nine in the morning and i would walk by this every day so this is in Venice and mental health problems, people screaming just at no one in the middle of the streets. And it, it's really a sad state of affairs. And then you add on to that the crime that's being committed there, um, you know, four or five times a day, I would hear police cars and fire trucks going by where I live. 
Um, and I really, it was starting to affect my mental health and everything. So, um, so I decided to take a, just a trip to Tulum, Mexico to visit a friend. And um, three weeks later, I went back to LA, packed up all my stuff, broke my lease, put it in storage, gave my car to my friend and took eight bags and moved to Tulum. So I'm in Tulum, Mexico now. Uh, never thought I would be here, never planned on it. It all happened in flow. I followed my intuition and uh, there's actually, people are actually living their lives down here. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm executive coach right now uh, for uh, various uh, CEOs and also am an interim COO for one of those companies. And um, just recently started a, a business with uh, a woman who lives downstairs from me, a clothing business, women's uh, dresses and oils, something I know nothing about, which, um, uh, you know, I'm going to bring, bring the business side to it. And she's bringing the obviously creative side and I'm starting a, a podcast called Tales from Tulum as well. So I've gotten very involved. I've been here a month and got a lot of things uh, cooking and I'm just uh, loving it and creating a new life for myself. And yes, I did write a book called Chasing the High and they're actually having me at the bookstore down here to talk about it. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm excited and interested about that. And that, that book is on Amazon and Audible. And I actually read it myself, which was a cool experience. Uh, and it's really all about my, uh, my journey through um, addiction, entrepreneurship, lawsuits, and, and my journey to the edge is kind of the subtitle. Sounds, uh, sounds like a must listen or a must read. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, obviously, I'm happy for you. I'm happy the way it, it all uh, ended up, but it, it sounds like a, a difficult time. I'm, I'm happy the way it's, uh, it's ended up for you. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. This is a good discussion because I do a lot of podcasts and they're all usually about addiction or about like, you know, writing a book or, you know, entrepreneurship, which is great. I love talking about that stuff, but I've never really talked in depth about the sale like I have on this show. So, you know, it, it was, it was fun. I appreciate it. Oh, awesome. Well, we'll see you again. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L 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 Thanks for listening.